I'll be reading uh, from chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 in the ESV. But if you have a different version, it should be fine. So Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, as you can tell, um, this passage talks about baptism. And baptism is one of the most central rituals in Christianity. And over time, we've gotten used to it or familiar with it. But like most of the rituals we have in our lives, when you stop and think about what's actually going on, it's actually pretty strange. So raising a young child, I'm constantly aware of what she's kind of taking in from the world and remembering what I was like and the weird things I used to do as a kid. So when we would drive anywhere and we would pass by a cemetery, somebody in the car would always shout, hold your breath. And then I would hold my breath. I have no idea why, but I felt it was the most serious thing I could do. And if I breathed in, something awful would happen to me. And then I used to think about, this is one thing I'm dreading the most as like a parent. Arlo still has all of her baby teeth, but the moment one of them gets shaky and I got to convince her to let me yank it out of her mouth so that blood starts gushing forth from it, I'm kind of like, oh gosh, I just, I don't know what I'm going to do. And when you think about how most parents deal with it, it's really bizarre. They came up with this guy, the tooth fairy, who's supposed to make it better. And you go, oh, don't worry. If you take that tooth out of your mouth and let the blood come gushing forth, a strange man will come into your room at the dead of night, steal a tooth from under your pillow, and leave cold, hard American cash there for you in the morning. And it's like, what is this guy doing with all these little teeth? Like, why does he need them? And the one that I think about the most is, in normal life, fire is bad. So whenever I cook, I like, Arlo, go over to the other side of the room. When we light candles to relax, we put them on high, out-of-reach spots. But for some reason, on her birthday, we get her favorite thing in the whole world, put flaming sticks in them, to tell her to get her face as close as she can to it, and then close her eyes. So what, what is going on? There's all these weird things that we do that when you think about it, it's really strange. And baptism is also one of those things. Most of us probably only think of baptism once a year when the new crop of Good News Church kids come up and they get baptized. And if you think about it from the kid's perspective, it's super strange. Your parents dress you up in these uncomfortable clothes that you never wear any other time in your life. In the middle of service, your parents come up, and then the pastor comes up, starts saying some random things. Everybody's looking at you and smiling, and you're like, oh, no, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the pastor splashes water in your face, and you're like, what is this? And when you look at this passage, it's talking about the most famous baptism in history. And rather than make this ritual clearer, it makes it even more muddled. Because at the heart of this passage is a mystery, and a mystery that we have to solve, and one that John the Baptist notices first. So before we talk about what's going on with this mystery, let me give a quick prayer for us, and then uh, we'll move on. Dear God, we just thank you so much for this time. And I sense in my own life 
and in the lives of the people here that we are going through a time of tiredness verging on exhaustion. And we know that exhaustion, when left unchecked, leads to anger. And when anger goes forward, it leads to brokenness in our relationships. But we thank you that you notice this and you know this about who we are. And you say, come to me, all you who are tired and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, we have so many burdens and heaviness in this room. But we thank you that we have a Savior who doesn't say, just work a little bit harder or just carry a little bit more. But in your invitation, there is something sweet. There's the opportunity to lay it all aside and come face to face with the Savior who knows us in the most intimate ways and carries all that we have on his own back. So we pray that as we worship you today, you would unburden us so that we can experience the true power of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. Jesus comes into the desert to meet his first cousin. And I'm pretty sure most of us have never met anybody like John the Baptist. From a distance, you would look out and you would see this thing, and you're not sure if you're looking at a man or an animal because he dresses in camel hair and he wears a leather belt. And as you get closer, you would see that his skin has been darkened by all the time that he has spent in the desert, letting the UV rays cover over him because he has no sunscreen to protect him. And then as you get closer and closer, you would smell something on his breath and you, that smells disgusting. What is that? I think I smell bugs and I think I smell honey because all he ate were locusts and wild honey. And then of course, there's the sound of hissing because anytime someone came near him, he insulted them and said, you are a sinner, you must confess. And when the religious leaders came out, he said, you guys are snakes. Who told you to come here? So John the Baptist is a strange dude, but he's also doing something strange as well. He's hiding out in the desert by water. And when people come to him and confess their sins, he, he semi-drowns them in the water. He dunks them in there, brings them back up and says, now you've been cleansed. Now go on with your life. But this strangeness is what gives John the power to notice the mystery that at, is at the heart of this passage. And when you look closely and look through the entire Bible, you'll notice that baptism is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's relatively new when John comes onto the scene. So where did he get this strange practice, this dunking practice from? He's drawn from a few different places. First, if you look through Old Testament law, a person could become unclean. And this could happen for a number of different reasons. Maybe you ate some lobster and you're not supposed to have shellfish. The one that would be hardest for me is you're not supposed to have cheeseburgers because you're not supposed to cook a goat in its mother's milk. So you can't have beef and cheese in the same bite. That would be difficult. Or you could not touch a dead body because if you did, you'd become ritually unclean. Or if you were sick, you'd also be unclean. And this is a major thing that happened. When you're declared unclean, you're cut off from your family. You're cut off from social life. You're cut off from worship. You can't go to church. So how do you overcome this uncleanness? You wait for a certain amount of time to pass and you wash. And in the washing, you are declared whole again. You're declared clean again. And you're invited back into community life. John is playing with this imagery and saying, when I wash you, you are cleansed from your sin. 
And if he were alive today, he'd probably be known as uh, John the Sanitizer because of the same types of associations we have with hygiene and Levitical law. But here he's just baptizing, so he's the Baptist. The second strand that he's pulling from is this. When the Jews were spread out throughout the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, people took notice and they go, oh, these guys are pretty strange, but I like something about them. And non-Jews would start to become very curious about Judaism, and some of them eventually wanted to convert. And they said, I want to follow your religion. And in order to do this, one of the things that they had to do was they had to be washed in water as a sign representing, I'm leaving my old life behind, and I'm going to join and follow this new life. And so John is tying these two strands together, purity and a new way of life, and baptizing people in the desert. And as he's there, he's doing something because he's been called to do it, and that is to prepare people for the Messiah. So he's telling them that they're sinners. He's telling them this is the way that you get clean. He's pointing. This is the way that you should go to follow God. And he's telling them about the Messiah. He's saying he's so strong. He's so mighty that I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And all of a sudden, this is what makes John special. As he's giving this message, Jesus, the Messiah, shows up. And John notices that there is a mystery that's about to unfold. Now, the Messiah shows up right as John is giving this message. Now, when I was a kid, I started playing guitar at the age of 10. And I was a very, very good guitar player at the age of 12. And then it kind of went downhill from there. But I had this fantasy that I'd be in a guitar center, hooking up to an electric guitar and an amp, playing my heart out. And all of a sudden, the lead guitarist from Metallica would show up at my guitar center, hear me play and say, young Asian boy, you need to come on tour with Metallica and play with me. And if that had happened, I would have felt like, you know, the, the, the world had transformed for me. And the wonderful thing about living in an internet age is you can actually see this come true. There's compilations of videos of these buskers out on the street singing cover songs. And all of a sudden, the guy or the girl shows up and starts singing with them. So you can see this, I think, European dude playing in a European square. I don't want to miss a a thing by Aerosmith, the Armageddon song. Don't want to miss a thing. And then all of a sudden he's singing, and then Steven Tyler comes up, grabs the mic, and starts singing with him. Or there's another one of a guy who's in LA singing this medley of Will I Am songs. All of a sudden, this modded Tesla pulls up behind him, and then Will I Am jumps out of the car and starts singing with him. Now imagine how you would feel if you're the busker and you're just singing this cover song, and all of a sudden the guy shows up. That would be amazing. And this is how John probably felt. He's saying, the Messiah, is the Messiah is here. And there's something strange and shocking that happens because John has just been saying, I baptize with water, but this next guy, he's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus doesn't come and say, step aside, John, it's time for the fire. Instead, he says, I have to be baptized by you. Now, why would the Messiah, who is sinless, who has been following God his entire life, need this symbol of baptism in his own life? And when he's confronted with this mystery, John says, no, 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 we cannot do this. This is not right. There's something perverse about what you're asking. And Jesus eventually commits, uh, convinces him. But think about John for a second. When Jesus makes this request, John must have had a number of different things go through his mind. Maybe he thought, wait a minute, if this guy is asking me for baptism, 
maybe he's not who I think he is. And it's strange because John actually had and expressed this thought later on in Matthew chapter 11. He's like, I'm expecting fire. I'm expecting Holy Spirit. I'm expecting judgment. And meanwhile, he's just going around healing the sick. And he sent his disciples while he was in prison to Jesus and said, hey, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else? But we know from the rest of the gospels that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So that's not it. So maybe he thought, all right, maybe this guy is the Messiah, but maybe he's not so strong and mighty after all. Maybe he's this weakling. And we know that this is the case for certain other people in the Bible. For example, Apostle Paul, when he wrote, he's got fire in his pen. But he says when people met him in person, they were very disappointed. He was so bad at speaking and he was so weak and frail. They're like, can this be the Apostle Paul? But we know from the Gospels that Jesus is not weak like Paul was weak. He could still the storm with the word. He could cast out thousands of demons with just his voice. We know that in Matthew 17, he reveals his entire glory to his three closest disciples. And Moses and Elijah show up to have a conversation with him. Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is a mighty Messiah. So why is he asking that John baptized him? The answer begins to unfold in verse 15. It says, Jesus convinces John that they need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, righteousness is a huge word in the Gospel of Matthew. It's used more in Matthew than all the other Gospels combined. And when you look at how Matthew uses it, you discover something pretty interesting. It does not mean what you think it means. Many of us equate righteousness with following the law. And we think of it like trying to um, keep to the speed limit, which I definitely did not do this morning. Jen's like, it says 40, and I was way over 40. Or we think of it like not making a mistake on our taxes so we can stay in accordance with the law. And that's the way the Pharisees used to think about righteousness. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when you look at every single time Matthew uses the word righteousness, you discover that it does not mean merely fulfilling the law. It means obeying God's purpose for your life so you can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Obeying God's purpose in your life so you can bring his kingdom on earth. And John had a hard time with this. He says, I don't get it. You're supposed to be greater than I. Why would you submit to me? And Jesus responds, and he says to him that I am doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I am going to show what true obedience is. And in this act, even though on one level I do not need it, I'm going to bring God's kingdom to earth. Now, it's funny how things can change over the course of a generation. Like the difference between uh, my grandparents and Arlo's grandparents. When I was a kid and I spent time with my grandma or grandpa, it was like being in the presence of royalty. I had to talk in a certain way. I had to dress in a certain way. I had to make sure that my hair was a certain way and I had to get on their level. But when I look at how Arlo plays with her grandparents, it's completely different, especially because she's such a, uh, I was about to say weird, she's such an imaginative child. <laughs> so the other day, for example, she says, daddy, I got something to tell you. I say, what is it? And she says, cherries have butts. I said, oh, they do? 
I said, who told you that? And with a straight face, she said, Jesus. <laughs> so this is my child, Jesus, whispering to her, not about fulfilling his law, but about cherries and butts. So she spends most of her time living in an imaginary world. And when her grandparents comes to visit, they happily enter this imaginary world. I've seen both my mother and Jen's mother on all fours, pretending to be unicorns so that Arlo can ride on their backs. I'm like, mom, you're in your 60s, relax. She goes, I gotta get her favor. I gotta get her to love me. And they're just trolloping around. I love my grandparents and I know they love me, but I could never imagine jumping on their back, pretending that they're unicorns. Though he is mighty and though he is strong through his baptism, Jesus is showing what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He is willing to get into our worlds with all of its craziness, with all of its weakness, with all of our misconceptions and say, hey, I don't need this. I don't need this baptism. I don't need this sin. But because you do, I will be here with you. He says that he is the type of Messiah who loves lowliness and exalts in it. And you can hear echoes of this in Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for himself. He needs to be baptized for us. And the mystery of Jesus's baptism demonstrates something else very curious about the way God works. So from a certain perspective, Jesus' baptism is an empty gesture. He doesn't have any sin. He doesn't need to reorient his life to God, but he goes through it anyway, and it doesn't benefit him at all. And from how God responds in these verses, we see something very powerful, and that is this. Empty gestures can be full of spiritual power. In verse 16 and 17, it tells us that after Jesus got baptized, the heavens opened up. And the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And he heard a voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In 1905, this guy named William Sidney Porter wrote a short story called The Gift of the Magi. And it's about a poor young married couple, Jim and Della, trying to figure out what to get each other for Christmas. And if you've ever been in a relationship, you know that this can be a very stressful situation, especially for somebody like me. I am very bad. At giving gifts. One time early in our dating relationship, I got Jen a computer mouse. Because <laughs> sometime in July, she was using a mouse and she goes, Oh, I like this mouse. So I gave it to her and she was like, What is this? I go, Remember in July? She's like, What are you talking about? That was not a, a Merry Christmas for anybody. So Della was poor and she wanted to get her husband Jim something very, very special, but she had no money. And the only thing of value she had was her hair. It was long and brown and flowed like a stream. So the day before Christmas, she goes to a wig maker. She cuts off her hair, sells it, and with the money, gets a gold chain. And the gold chain is meant for the only valuable thing Jim has, which is a watch. A watch that his grandfather had owned, that he had passed on to his father, that he had passed on to Jim. She's excited. She comes home. She can't wait to give this present to Jim. And Jim walks through the door, takes one look at her hair, and gives this disappointed look. And Della thinks, oh no, he thinks I'm ugly now. But that's not it. Jim reaches into his jacket, 
pulls out these combs that were meant for her long, beautiful hair. And he said, I noticed that you were looking at these through the store window. He's a much better husband than I am. And then Della says, well, I got you a present too. She pulls out the gold chain and says, give me your watch. I want to see what these look like together. And as I'm sure you have guessed by now, the only way that Jim could have afforded these combs is by selling his watch. So there they are on Christmas Eve with two useless gifts, two empty gestures. But Porter ends the story with these words. Here, I've told you the story of two people who are not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing they own to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts, these two were the most wise. Empty gestures that don't make sense can be filled with power and with meaning. And we know this. On Sundays, we come to church and half of us spend an hour and a half chasing after a child. And when it comes to singing time, maybe we can look up and sing one word. When it comes to the message, maybe we see that the passage is Matthew 3, but that's it. And then we go home and go, what's the point of this? I didn't get anything out of it. Or we spend months praying for our friends and for our family and nothing seems to change. Or we show up at 9.30 in the morning and find that the storage closet is locked. <laughs> what an empty gesture. I came all this way. There's no fruit here. Or a sinful woman pours expensive perfume onto Jesus' feet, lets it pour out onto the ground. You hear Jesus' disciples go, what a waste. Once a year, we bring little kids to the front and splash water on their face. And they are not going to remember it. And we think, what's the point of all this? To many, these things seem like pointless gestures, but to God, they are not. He sees these small acts of faith, as empty as they might seem, and he's pleased. If you listen carefully and you look carefully, you can see that the heavens open up and God whispers to each person in this room, you are my son, you are my daughter, I am pleased. Let's pray. Uh, let's just spend a moment. I think um, the place a lot of us are at is actually kind of where I <clears throat> started our prayer, which is I think a lot of us are tired, uh, bordering on exhausted. And one of the things that Jesus' baptism teaches us is that he is with us in that tiredness. And he is with us in that exhaustion. And First, Second Peter, it says to cast our cares onto the Lord because he cares for us. So maybe what we can do is just take a few minutes and lift up some of the things that are on your heart, some of the things that you're struggling with. Maybe some of the things that you do every day that seem like they don't make a difference. And as we cast these things unto God, maybe we can start to hear his voice say, I am pleased with you. I see what you're doing. Well done. And so as you pray like that for a little bit, we'll have the worship team come up and lead us in some songs.